Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Phil Wang was one of only two comedians from outside the United States to be invited to perform as part of Netflix's The Comedy Lineup series in 2018. Born in England but raised in Malaysia until he returned to the UK at age 16, Wang graduated from the University of Cambridge with an engineering degree and the prestige of serving as a president of the Footlights, the legendary campus comedy troupe whose other past presidents have included the likes of Peter Cook, Eric Idle, Hugh Laurie, and Douglas Adams. For his part, Wang's credits have focused mostly on stand-up, releasing two of his previous specials for free on YouTube, and making the rounds of British comedy panel series, as well as guesting on Series 7 of Taskmaster. Philly Philly Wang Wang broke ticket-selling records at the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe, and he intended to film it for Netflix in May 2020, but had to put it off for a year due to the pandemic. Wang sat down with me to talk about his career in comedy philosophy. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! All right, so so Phil, Philly Phil, uh, congrats on the Netflix special. Um, Thanks, man. Quite a step up from the the comedy lineup. You get your own hour now. Yeah. What? Um, yeah. Last, last things first. Uh, you know, I know you you meant to record this in May of 2020. So, what material did you end up having to drop to replace it with all of the pandemic material? It was stuff that. Um, it was stuff specifically to do with morality and the differences in moral significance between words and action. You can tell why I dropped it. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it was... it's, it's not it's not timely or topical. <laughs> but it, it was it was a bit it was a bit it got could get a bit serious and sometimes it was one of those bits that was quite challenging and quite abrasive and and you know it had this big callback punchline that could really strike but sometimes it would kind of miss and just be a bit iffy and so it was a bit that um i think every comics every show every comedian makes has a has a few minutes in it that they think i like this i think it has value but it's never quite got there it's never quite got to that full 100 percent dependable and and so that was the the stuff I took out to replace with the pandemic material, and I think it has made for a better special. So in a sense, I think the special has actually benefited from being postponed due to the pandemic. I want to go on record as saying that on balance, I wish the pandemic hadn't happened, but <laughs> in the specific context of my special, it it, it improved it. I think. Right, but you you do also take blame for the pandemic, so yeah, sort of existential weird blame, yeah. Right, so I guess in the end, oh, so you're saying it was actually a conspiracy by me to get some new material? (laughs) Isn't that isn't that the hidden agenda of every stand-up comedian? Is is just 
make things happen to be able to get material out of it. Yeah, but I don't think any of us get up early enough or have the organizational skills to conduct a global pandemic. Right, but it's it's not that it's not that comedians are disturbed people. It's that comedians have to be disturbing to prompt the situations that then <laughs> generate the material. <laughs> I think you've got a point there. And I sometimes feel like I am too sensible and not disturbing in real life as a person. And if I were a little more insane, I'd have a lot more material. Well, that's the engineer in you, right? Yeah, I'm too sensible. I'm too careful. I don't really get into scrapes because I'm good at, I understand risk and I avoid, I avoid risky situations. Um, so it's really, ha- I mean, it's made for a relatively stable life, but I, I don't get into many amusing mishaps, unfortunately. Mm. Well, how, how much of that is, is also due to having been brought up in Malaysia? where the there's a there's more more of an air of discipline <laughs> um yeah it's something i'm not i wonder if malaysia is an area of more discipline it is in some ways and like growing up with um growing up a chinese family you are a little more disciplined maybe maybe discipline plays more of a, a central role um i also you know my mother is a doctor and my father is an engineer. So I've always had a very analytical risk averse grounding in life. And, and, uh, you know, I, I had two parents who were always very good at understanding risk, avoiding risk and sort of playing it safe and always highlighted the, the importance of second checking your actions, your intentions. And so, yeah, so it brought me up to be a very careful person which has been good in some ways, but I think also robbed me of some experiences. Well, you know, one of, one of the things that's also attributed to Chinese parents or Asian parents in, in general is the idea that you should pursue a risk-averse career, such as doctor, <laughs> lawyer, engineer. So... I guess I have to ask just out of ob- obligation, was there, was there much, much pushback or questioning by your parents when, even though you went to Cambridge to study engineering, then you ended up falling in with the footlights and in, in, into this career? Of yeah. Comedy? Yeah. It, yeah. I think my having got into Cambridge and completing masters in, in engineering at Cambridge satisfied a lot of their goals for me as far as achieving something professional, sensible, and sort of real, you know. I, I, I got an engineering master's from Cambridge, which, you know, and so they, they can go, we did what we could. We did everything we could. <laughs> he's, you know, he, he's, he's done about as well in his academic life up to this point as one could reasonably hope for. And for, that doesn't mean like for years, my mum would say on the phone, if I was talking to her, she'd just end the conversation with, maybe you want to get a business degree. Do you want to get a business degree? And I'm telling her about these gigs I've done and stuff. And she's like, yeah, that sounds nice. Maybe you get a business degree. Um, that, but that was the worst that they got really. They've all been really, um, really supportive. And, and, they've always said to do what makes you happy and what you value. 
Um, I mean, my mother was herself sort of bucked the trend growing up in, you know, Stoke on Trent and then moving to Malaysia to pursue archaeology into a place that she was completely unknown to her. So I think, you know, she, she is something, someone who is very um, familiar with the idea of taking uh, the road less traveled by, as it were. There's also, you know, an element of graduating in 2012. A lot of people my age were graduating into the the world that the 2008 financial crash had left behind. And it was a world in which no job really felt all that secure. The idea of secure employment had started to go out the window. And it, in a way, it was like, it was a time at which a career in comedy felt about as secure as a career in anything else. <laughs> Yeah, I I suppose it is. Um, one of the things, yeah, one of the things I guess that's ironic about comedy is it that it it thrives in amid chaos. Mm, do you reckon? Well, I mean, people. Would you say that comedy thrived during the Trump era? I would say it didn't. I I, I would say that um, comedy I suffered from the, the Trump era. People, I, I guess what what I what I what I believe is that people look to comedy more in times of chaos. Whether or not the comedy industry or specific comedians rise to the occasion is a different matter. Okay, okay, that's a good point. That's a good counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you might be right. Yeah, mm, I think that's a good point. But you made me think, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I. I yeah, it's hard to know, really. I think com comedy requires an, a, a, a kind of stability as well to play off of. I think the world needs to be sufficiently boring for comedy to be good. I think when when the world's in chaos, comedy feels this need to be like politically, socially, and ethically responsible. Um, and I think it puts on shoes that are too big for itself and suffers from it. Whereas if the world is in a relatively comfortable place. I think comedy has has a more accurate idea of what it's there for. But I mean, the, the, these, you know, we're starting to bleed into my own just beliefs about what comedy should be and what it's about. Um, That's perfectly fine. Please. The, prom the problem with the Trump era was like, you know, there was no joke to add. Comedy needs a joke to add. And with Trump, there was no joke to add. It was finished the second the, second the cameras were turned off him. It was right, finished. He it was done. He was the joke. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I suppose you're also you're also right too in suggesting that in, especially as I'm thinking about it now, in times of chaos, it's also when we have these these broader discussions or debates about the merits of comedy. You know, I'm old enough that when I was in college in the early '90s. That was we were talking about political correctness then, mm -hmm. and yeah. then after the uh, September 11th attacks, we were talking about political correctness then, and now we're mm -hmm. talking about it once more, in terms of like what you can joke about and what's what's fair. Yeah, it's just called wokeness now. It just it just changed the name, but it's the same conversation. But in times of in times of relative stability, we're not having those conversations. We're just. We're just having a laugh. I mm. guess because the stakes aren't high. 
Yes. 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 You're right. Yes. The stakes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I really don't know. There, there's a theory in the UK that comedy thrives from a conservative government. The comedy's always done well when the Tories have been in charge. But I think it's probably more to do with the fact that the Tories are usually in charge. So I think that's a false correlation people have made. Right. Um, I mean, you know, you do talk in your special, spoiler alert, about um, how you have rules about accents. Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's perhaps shocking and yet not shocking at all that even though you recorded this a little while ago, just in the past week, there was the football team from Italy, Juventus, their women's soccer team put out this tweet where one of their one of their players was was making slanted eyes with a with oh, a cone really? on top of her head. Wow! Yeah, it's, at this uh, point, at this point, I'm not. Uh, I, at this point, these people, I'm not even angry. I'm just like, that was dumb. You should you should be how how are you so unaware and dumb to do something like that now? Mm-hmm. How little attention do you pay to things? You know what I mean? But I mean, my, my, my rule about accents sort of stands. That is like, the, like pulling your eyes apart and stuff. It's kind of like the next level. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't bother me personally. I just get embarrassed for them. I'm like, you know, I feel embarrassed for them. I don't feel like, I don't feel lessened myself. I just feel embarrassed for them because they look stupid. Right. It's such a juvenile thing. But also, it's, it, I mean, the bit is about play on sort of power dynamics. And it's, it's kind of a reply to this idea in comedy that people like of that comedy should always punch up. And I'm like, it's who is up is a very difficult thing to judge. I mean, China, you could say is up. So it's doing an impression of Chinese people punching up or punching down. You know, it's if if you make an impression of white people here, you're not going to get in trouble. But there are more Chinese people; they're the real majority. So then, why you know? And so I'm just playing around with that. I don't, you know, I, I just I, I kind of like to turn people's the ideas like this on top of them, upside down on, on themselves, in on themselves, you know. And the, you know, the the crux of the bit is that if you are a powerful society and a historically powerful race of people. I, I, I don't think a rude impression should really touch the sides of what you find offensive. Well, I would hope, uh, especially too, since you're a, a past president of Footlights, that you're, you're, at the, you're at the top of the comedy food chain, right? Uh, no, I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Eric Idle, Peter Cook, Hugh Laurie, Doug Adams, Phil Wang. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I, you're the, yeah, you're I the comedy elite, so... In a way, yeah. In it, the Footlights are an interesting thing because they're they're this legendary comedy society with this elite, prestigious alumni, but at the same time, they're a student theatre group in the University of Cambridge. You know, it, it kind of lives a sort of double life as as simultaneously like prestigious and a bunch of kids. You know what I mean? So does it not have the same cachet in the UK then that the Harvard Lampoon still seems to have? The well, the United Harvard States? Lampoon is, is like professionalized. It's like everything in America. It's profession. It's like, it's not even just a club. It's like a 
proper company. I mean, they've they've public they have regular publications. They have a publishing arm, don't they? They all I know is they have a pipeline to Hollywood. Yeah, is that still the case? Yeah, where you you can graduate from Harvard, be a be a president or a member of the Lampoon, and then immediately get on the writing staff of Saturday Night Live or or The Simpsons or yeah. Again, there is a confirmation bias, you know, in that the people who end up at the Lampoon or the Footlights are bright, funny people who were going to end up, many of whom I would say would have ended up in those jobs anyway, or at least would have pursued those jobs. So it makes sense that they'd be in those jobs. But similarly, you know, in the UK, the the, the stranglehold that Footlights supposedly has on the comedy circuit, on the, on the comedy industry is... Um, is overstated at the moment. It's not really the case. I mean, it might have been a few decades ago, but right now, and this is a good thing, you know, the I think the intake of, com- of comic perspectives and backgrounds in the British comedy industry is broadened. It's quite wide, I think. I think it's pretty egalitarian, really, compared to many other domains. Should, I mean, if you, if you had, if you had any any uh, moral or actual authority in comedy, what would you, what would you do to make it, make it a better industry? Oh, I don't think, I don't think I, I mean, I think that kind of goes against exactly what I think is wrong, could be wrong with the comedy industry is that I don't think edicts should come down from anyone. I think it has, it's, um, it should, Comedy should just exist by its own merits and be judged on its own merits um, and and be funny. I mean, that sounds trite to say. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, somewhere like the UK, a little more, I think a, a grant would be good for like an arts grant. I think there used to be something like that in the UK for people who were pursuing a career in the arts and live performance got a sort of government grant to help them get get going. Mm-hmm. I think something like that would, would really help and it would help address uh, the class imbalance um, that exists in the UK. And comedy is very middle and upper middle class dominated. Um, but so yeah, a little a little financial support from the government, like more robust arts grants. But I mean, that's boring. That's a boring answer to that question. <laughs> but I think it, 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 it's, it's the one that would help the most. It's boring, but it but it would represent a fundamental shift because it would allow more people to yeah. pursue it. I mean, I know I know in the United States, it's it's been debated among comedians and people in the industry about how how it, at least in terms of sketch comedy and improv the barriers <clears throat> to entry are, are so huge for people who don't have the financial means to take the classes or to study at the oh, theater totally. it's crazy in the states i mean like the states looks like an amazing place to make it but to get started it's impossible i mean you you don't get paid for ages and even when you do it's like $50 or something. It's, it's crazy. And like bringer gigs and the amount of just unpaid and performing on open mics in front of other comedians and 
performing in laundromats and stuff. It's brutal, man, from what it sounds like. Starting comedy in America, I feel very lucky I got to start it in the UK because it sounds brutal starting comedy in America. <laughs> it sounds incredibly hard. Uh, probably, probably still easier than starting in Malaysia, though? <laughs> well, probably not anymore. I mean, the, Mal- the Malaysian comedy scene is really coming up and there are some great comics I know there and they're really building up their own identity and their real confidence. And um, there's a guy called, uh, you should check out Jason Leong on, on Netflix. He's, okay. he's a Malaysian comic. Um, now his, his show is a bit more, it's quite Malaysian, but I think even if you're not Malaysian, you can, you can get a lot of it. It's really good. Um, if you want to get a flavor of Mal- Malaysian standup, check out Jason Leong on, on Netflix. Yeah. It, is it in English or in Mandarin? Or? Yeah, it's in English. Okay. But he, he'll throw, because it's Malaysian English, from time to time, he'll throw in a Chinese word or a Malay word, but it's not his main. It's basically ninety nine point nine percent English. Okay, yeah, I've I've watched quite a bit of the uh, Indian specials on Netflix because they're mostly in English. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it is interesting as an American to see Netflix go real really global with their stand up and not know if it's playing well because one, it's subtitled, so you're you have that difficulty. Although sometimes you can, you can tell just by the cadence, whether someone is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do you mean? It's, it's hard for you to tell. It's, it's hard for you to tell how well it's going in the U in the U S. How... Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah. Who knows? I mean, there are things that will get lost in translation with anything. Even American specials that come over here, you know, American comics make references to um, a shop brand or something, and we have no idea what you're talking about. We can, but we can, from the context, fill in the gaps and still, you know, enjoy it, right? right? Well, uh, Phil, I know I've taken up time when you have a lot of other interviews to give, but thank you for indulging me in a very serious, what turned out to be a very serious conversation. Oh, I mean, this comedy. is the kind of conversation you should have on a comics comic, right? It's like... <laughs> More in depth than anyone really wants to know. That's that's the that's what a comics comic wants. Right. I I I I would love to hear all of your challenging material. So I, <laughs> so I congratulate you on this special and look forward to the next one. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, John. Thank nice to meet you. Thank you, Phil. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.